Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And on this episode, we are wrapping up our series on wine influencers and we're attacking it from a different angle. Today we have Juliana Colangelo, who is at Colangelo Partners, which is an integrated communications agency focused on the drinks industry. And she's going to talk about it, how wine influencers work with companies and some of her clientele. So Juliana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for the introduction. So as Robert mentioned, I'm Juliana Colangelo. I'm the VP for California at Colangelo and Partners. We specialize in integrated communications for the beverage alcohol industry, with the majority of our clients being in the wine industry, as well as some clients in, in spirits and food. Influencer marketing has grown to become a much bigger part of our overall agency strategy for clients, both on the spirits and wine side. And it's definitely an evolving field that changes every day, but one that's really exciting to be working in and I think has some great opportunities for the wine industry specifically. So why and when should a wine brand use influencer marketing? So wine brands should think of influencer marketing much like general marketing. It's a way to get your word out to the consumer. Uh, I would say that influencer marketing can often do that much more directly than other forms of marketing. So why should a wine brand use influencer marketing? 74% of people trust social networks to guide their purchasing decision. So that's one reason. People trust other people and influencers are perceived as consumers often as other people that are trusted for brand recommendations. The wine industry, especially when cultivating the next generation of drinkers, the millennials, the Gen Z, 44% of that consumer demographic, age 21 to 29, say that they're drinking more during COVID. So right now there's an opportunity as well to engage with that demographic who is very active on social media and following these influencers. So I'd say that wineries should incorporate influencer marketing into their marketing strategies to reach a younger consumer, but also just for general broad-scale brand awareness and to reach consumers more directly. So you think of it as an option to reach younger consumers, and this is a trade-off between print advertising or other forms of digital advertising? So you can think of influencer marketing much like the convergence of earned media relations and paid media or advertising. So influencer marketing has some similarities to both. So like media relations, you have to identify an influencer that speaks to your brand, that you think would be interested in your brand's core values, an influencer that reflects your brand's core values, much like when you're placing an ad, you're looking for a publication or a news outlet that speaks the same language as your brand. But like paid advertising, you have more control over the content that the influencer is putting out as opposed to with earned media where the journalist is writing the story from a journalistic perspective. So influencer marketing is this confluence between those two things of earned media and of of paid advertising. So it has some attributes of both. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And how, how do you see the different components of influencer marketing? Like what are the elements that a brand should be leveraging and when they're looking for is it, I mean, is it, I'm sure it varies greatly by platform that you're working on, but I'm just curious on 
what are the kind of the big ticket items, the main, the main elements? Yeah. So the platform is almost always going to be Instagram. And now there's also TikTok and YouTube. But I'd say that Instagram, especially in the last couple of weeks since Instagram has introduced Instagram Reels, which is their response to TikTok, that Instagram is the primary platform that you're thinking about. So consider Instagram your media outlet, so to speak, if you're thinking about this as like an advertisement or an earned media placement. So that's the the platform. In terms of what, what is the influencer posting? What is the content? You want to think about the campaign. So what are you trying to say about your brand? Is it the spring and you're releasing your rosé and white wine and you want to drive a campaign to increase awareness around those core SKUs? Or is it the holiday season and you've got a gift set or a gift offering that you want to increase awareness around? So think about what am I trying to communicate, much like any advertising or communication strategy. So then you want to think about the pieces of the communication strategy that you're looking for help with from the influencer. So often when we're thinking about influencer campaigns for our clients, it's about content creation. We want photos of people in real life scenarios that are harder to capture in a photo studio or through a photo shoot. So we're looking to create a campaign that inspires influencers to create real life scenario type of images. So for example, that might be at home with X brand. And we might ask influencers to create content cooking with a specific wine. And then we own that content from the influencer and can then incorporate it into our social media strategy, even our web strategy and other digital assets. So there's a lot of different ways in which your campaign results can be utilized with influencers, which is another reason that we recommend to our clients to engage with influencer marketing. It's multifaceted and it can accomplish different goals, engagement, but as well as content creation, which is a core part of social media marketing and communications in general. So how often, so I get engagement and getting more brand content. Are they also looking to build their own social following through that or, you know, build an email list or something like that in order to get further marketing down the line? and or drive immediate sales through influencer marketing? Yeah, absolutely. Those are both things that can be integrated into the influencer campaign. And it's, again, about being really clear in the beginning about your objectives with the campaign. So is it about awareness? Is it is it about email signups? Is it about sales? And it can be about a, a few of those things, but really defining what you're trying to achieve up front is going to be really important for setting the tone for the campaign and then later on measuring the success based on those metrics. So some ways you can encourage sales through an influencer marketing campaign are by using unique links and codes that can track the traffic from that influencer post directly back to your brand's website. So setting up a UTM code, a unique code that the influencer will incorporate either most often as a swipe up in their Instagram stories that'll link to your website. So that's the best way that we can track back for sales. If it's something like email acquisition or signups, again, putting that link to the signups or wherever the action is into the content that the influencer is producing is going to be key there. And then if the the metric is also engagement and increasing your brand's follower count on that platform here, let's say Instagram, then you're also going to want to track timing. So when does the influencer campaign start and end? And then you want to measure 
your audience before and after to see if it had had an impact on your follower account. So I think it's really clear to set up your metrics, set your KPIs and measure before and after so that you can tar- you can measure the success of the campaign. I'm curious on, um, you know, Peter and I always have this debate because uh, he's always focused in on how does this turn into sales for for wineries because that's selling wine is in many ways harder than making the wine. And I always talk think think about it in terms of awareness and, and growing growing the wineries following. Like, how would you define that split between uh, companies that are that you're working with that are are they trying to grow awareness or are they trying to convert sales? Are they because it sounds like they have to target one or the other for the most part? Yeah, I would say. First, it's going to depend on how the brand is set up. So, for example, if it's not, if it's an international brand, it's going to be a lot harder to promote sales directly with an influencer marketing campaign because you don't have a direct-to-consumer element most often. I know there are some platforms now that are selling imported wine direct-to-consumer, but more often than not, an imported brand has less control of that direct-to-consumer relationship. So for domestic wineries, you have much more control of, of the consumer relationship, especially you know assuming you're set up to sell direct. So you have that capability to link to your cart or link to your your retail page on your website. So there, I would say that we're more often prioritizing sales. I do think it's both. I think at the end of the day, ultimately, everyone wants to sell more wine, but you would look at an influencer marketing campaign as accomplishing both awareness and sales. But if you don't have the right metrics, you're not going to be able to track sales. So you have to have those unique codes. You have to have a call to action. Those are the ways in which you're going to be able to track sales. If you don't have those things, I'd consider it more of an awareness campaign. So I'd I'd look at it like that. Like, How are you setting up the framework of the campaign? And in terms of how these strategies vary by winery size, so if you're a small mom and pop, you make 5,000 cases versus some massive brand, like how, how have you seen their strategies differ? Well, it's definitely going to start with budget. I think that's that's key here. So influencers vary based on the size of their following, how much they're charging for campaigns. So if you're a mom and pop winery, you're likely not spending $100,000 with a single influencer on a campaign. So I think that's the first thing to consider is your budget and then the size of which the influencer partner that you're going to be able to work with. So some people think traditionally of influencers as celebrities. Celebrity partnerships might start from 250K. So that's where, you know, your mom and pop small independent wineries are immediately not going to be in that playing field. So there, with the smaller wineries, you're thinking more about the micro and mid-tier level influencers. So influencers that range anywhere from 2,000 followers up to maybe 30,000 followers or so. So within that range, you're going to have more realistic budgets that a mom and pop or smaller shop can accomplish for a campaign. Robert's just out of that micro-influencer bucket now. (laughs) There you go. And then for larger companies, they're going to likely be looking at larger influencers. So more in that 100K and plus range. So I'd say that's one of the primary differences is in the type of influencers, mainly the, the size of the influencer. I'd also say that the larger companies are tend to work more campaign oriented. So they might have a specific skew or a specific promotion they're trying to communicate with an influencer campaign where the smaller wineries are tending to look for just general 
brand awareness. They just want their name out there where the larger wineries want a very specific wine or a very specific promotion or offering. Those are some of the the major differences that we see between the, the small mom and pop wineries and then the larger ones. So keeping going on budget, outside of, I think when you say 250000 for a celebrity or 100000 or or whatnot, that's the payment to the influencer themselves? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so what are the other costs involved with an influencer campaign? So some of the other costs involved would include, are you hiring an agency to manage your influencer marketing? So in that case, you're going to have an agency fee. So then the agency is responsible for finding the target influencer. They're responsible for developing the campaign, negotiating contracts, all the work that goes into managing it. So you might want to think about what that that agency fee is going to be. It could be part of your, if you have a PR agency that's working on other communications tactics, it might be within their scope and it might be an add-on to what they're doing. Or you might hire a specific influencer marketing agency to execute a campaign for you. So it's going to depend. That's one of the other costs you might need to consider. You would also need to consider product and sending product to the influencer to utilize for their campaign. So those are a couple of the other costs, but primarily it's going to be the the fee to the influencer. You might, while you're running an influencer campaign, you might want to think about also adding more advertising behind your social media strategy so that when your influencer campaign is running at the same time you've got ads running and other tools out there to increase awareness because we like to think about things from multiple touch points. So if I'm a consumer and I see your brand on an influencer campaign or from an influencer I follow, and then I'm also fed an ad by your brand or I see your brand in an ad I I see, then you're hitting multiple touch points. So you might want to also think about adding social media advertising on top of that, that spend with the influencer campaign. So how often are are you encouraging brands once they run with an influencer to then boost those posts on top of what because you give you have that ability as you do a paid partnership as a brand to boost uh, the influencer's existing post and pay for that media spend is that something that they frequently do or is that kind of new territory It depends for us if we're managing their social media. If we're managing social then we'll recommend a little extra spend on social to boost the page while we're running an influencer campaign. But it's not, it's, I would say it's an extra. It's not an absolute necessity. It's more of an extra if you want to kind of take it to an added level and, and add another layer. So what's a realistic budget for an influencer campaign for whether it's smaller or, or a larger one? Yeah, so it can, some influencers will post what we say organically, so without any payment at all. So there you're pitching them much the way, same way you'd pitch a journalist to write a story about your brand. You're pitching them with an idea about your brand and a story and assets, mostly in the form of product, and then an ask for them to share information about your brand. So it could range from $0 all the way up to, you know, those hundreds of thousands of dollar ranges that I was mentioning earlier. But I would say, a realistic spend on, let's say, a singular Instagram feed post would start from around $500 on, and scale up from there, depending on the size of the influencer. But that's just for one post. So if you're thinking about a campaign as five different partners, each posting once, you know, one feed post and one story post, you might be thinking more like $750 to $1,000 per influencer partner times the number of partners, so times five. 
So when we think about a campaign wanting to create buzz and create awareness around a specific idea, we're thinking of multiple influencers, typically at least five. So think about your per-influencer spend times the number of influencers that you want to engage with. And you're, you're looking ideally for those to all hit out in a similar time span. You're trying to flood the, the messaging so it's, yeah, you catch exactly. the majority of as you can. Right, exactly. You're trying to hit different audiences from different influencers all at once and create sort of a, a little bit of a buzz on the, the platform when, in which you're engaging with for your brand. So you, you mentioned some pretty big numbers and then not that big of a number. You know, you mentioned $100,000. Um, I'm curious on, um, so there's obviously the niche of wine and spirits and things like that. How often are you working with a non-beverage industry influencer versus a beverage-focused one? I would say it depends on the client. It's probably about a 50-50 split, though, overall as an agency, because it's going to ultimately come back to who are you trying to speak to? If you want to speak to wine people and you're trying to speak within that specific audience, you're looking for wine influencers. But if you're trying to reach a new demographic and expand beyond maybe the current people that you're already reaching, you're going to look maybe for influencers in other genres. Could be influencers more in the health and wellness space, if that's a part of your brand strategy or that speaks to your messaging. Or it could be influencers in like, there's now influencers that kind of fit the same mold as the mommy blogger space. So if you're looking for a slightly older demographic. So I'd say it's about 50-50, depending on, again, coming back to what the, the overall goal is. So you would define kind of like a micro or niche, someone from like 5,000 to 30,000, I believe? Yeah, micro we'll call like 2.5,000 to about 15,000 followers. And then mid-tier we'll define as 20,000 to 100,000. And then macro is what we would call 200,000 plus. There's also nano influencer, which was about 1.5,000 or around then. And we're seeing some trends actually that the nano and micro influencers although they have a smaller reach, that they have more consumer trust, that they have higher engagement ratios as well. So that means that more higher percentage of their audience engages with the post than with a macro influencer. So there's benefits to some of the smaller ones. You might think, oh, well, I have that many followers, but are you curating content? Are you engaging with your followers? Are you checking your Instagram every two minutes? You know, that's that's the difference between just a person with an influencer, with an Instagram account and a nano or a micro influencer. And so in terms, if you had a ballpark like I mean, obviously it depends on the individual metrics, but like what's a, for the micro-influencer, what's a good average price range in the beverage industry? So for a single post, I'd for say- For a single for, post, yeah. Right, for a single post, I'd say $250 is a fair start. And with influencers too, since there's no written rule book out there, it's a lot of times some influencers will come to you with their deck and they'll say, this is what I charge for- a post. This is what I charge for a story. The more sophisticated experienced ones will often do that. And then it, it's a very clear transactional thing. I have X budget to spend. This influencer costs X, so I can afford three posts. Other influencers may not have their pricing and writing, and then it's a bit more of a, ne- a negotiation. I'd also treat it a little bit more like a relationship too. Like, is this influencer someone who reflects my brand's persona, reflects my brand values? Do I want them to be speaking about my brand. So go into it a little bit more relationship oriented and then think about the budget from there based on 
do I vibe with this influencer? Is this a person that I want speaking about my brand before you even get into a budget? But, you know, if you're trying to build out a marketing plan or a marketing strategy, you know, I think $250 a post for the micro nano level is, is reasonable. And then going up a tier to the 20 to 100, which is probably where the majority of the wine influencers would sit in terms of the, that middle range. Right. There, I would say we're looking more at you know $750 to $1,000 a post minimum at that more mid-tier level. Got it. Okay. And those are for posts. And you mentioned stories too. Is It's a different charge for stories. And is that more or less than a post? A story usually would budget out as a story series, so at least three to four frames. And there, the budget is typically a little less than a feed post because a feed post might be something where they're putting together an entire photo shoot or the, if it's a recipe pairing, they're they're making an entire meal and, and taking photos where in their stories, the content is typically less produced and more casual. So it might be a graphic or it might be a video of them talking about your brand. So story posts are typically most often going to be less than a feed post in terms of what you're budgeting. And do influencers have other things outside of posts and stories in their media kits? Yeah, definitely. I would say right now there's Instagram reels are starting to become more popular. So those definitely require more production time and effort. So it just launched two weeks ago. So we haven't yet figured out exact pricing on it, but that'll likely be higher pricing than an Instagram feed post or a story. Some influencers are using YouTube and going back to producing more longer form video content that they're promoting on YouTube. Just right now, as people are home, there's more appetite to watch video. So we're seeing a return to to YouTube for some influencers. So those are a couple of the other main platforms. There's also TikTok. TikTok for the beverage alcohol industry, I think is an interesting one. I think a lot of people are staying away from it because they think that the average user is just too young to legally market a beverage alcohol brand. But some brands, I would say, like are looking at what to, how can they engage on TikTok. And I'm definitely seeing some influencers as well starting to build their profiles on TikTok. We as an agency haven't tapped into TikTok too much yet, so I don't have a ton of personal experience, although I love scrolling TikTok. I think it's yes. very entertaining. But we haven't yet engaged with it from an agency level. But those are a couple of the other platforms. The algorithm is very different there where it's really based on pure viewership versus like a following mechanic. So it's quite interesting to see how, how that will pan out. And then interesting to see how Reels adapts to that because now you can sort of port that content over if you're doing Reels into TikTok and kind of get a one for one. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious to see how they how they merge and also, also the future of TikTok too with everything that's happening in the news. It'll be interesting to see where that goes and all that. So. Yeah, Facebook and Twitter, I'd say, are kind of less obvious here, but can sometimes be utilized as well. But we're not, as an agency, typically working with influencers on those platforms. Our primary is Instagram, YouTube. I'd say even some influencers, too, will have their own blog. So just web, too, can also be part of an influencer campaign strategy. So if they're creating a recipe series, for example, for Instagram, and then they might create a blog post as well and have the content live on the blog where they have more opportunity for SEO and um, it's also just a bit more of a permanent space for the content to live. So I'd say that web and blog is still being utilized. And in terms of finding influencers to partner with, uh, what is your recommendation for wineries to figure out who they should be working with? 
So if you have an agency, I would give your agency a brief on who your target consumer is. What's the demographic of your target consumer? Where are they located? What is their income? Just your general consumer snapshot, because that'll help the agency then identify the influencer that's going to reach that target audience. If you're not working with an agency partner, there's some platforms out there that can help you target and look for influencers. Dovetail is one that we work with. So there you can look specifically by region, by demographic. It gives you a lot of different metrics at which to look for influencers. So I'd say that's one place to start is, is dovetail that platform if you're not working with an agency and if you're doing it yourself. As well as see on your brand's page if there's influencers that are reaching out to you quite often they're out there looking for brand partnerships and they're going to reach out to your brand if they if they're familiar with your brand or they're looking to work with wine partners. In that case, I'd still recommend having a platform like Dovetail where you can measure. Dovetail will also help you measure what the audience is of that influencer. So it's going to give you insights into that the influencer's audience, where are they located, what's their average age, etc. So Either way, whether you're working with an agency or not, Dovetail is a good platform to think about using if you're looking to put together influencer campaigns. So influencers will provide that information to Dovetail so that they can be vetted for brands? Is that the understanding? Because the other the Dovetail shouldn't be able to pull that data uh, about your user base. Um, that's something I'm not sure about. I, I can get back to you on that. I don't know how they're getting oh, information. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how Dovetail is. I was just is. curious. I- if they, if they opted into that as like a vetting process. I don't know. That's a great question, actually. And, and you're using Dovetail for your clients, basically. Right. We use Dovetail, and then we've also, over the years, just developed our own database. What we're measuring, too, when we're looking at influencers, things that there's going to be qualitative and quantitative metrics. So on the quantitative side, we're looking at follower count, but we're also looking at engagement rate. So how many people are engaging on their post? And then the metric that we're using there is that 2% or above is a good engagement rate. I know that sounds really low, but believe it or not, that that is a strong engagement rate. So we're looking at engagement rate to see are people actually engaging with this influencer's content and how many people are they reaching, right? So those are that's one metric we're looking at. The way that we calculate engagement rates, so it would be the the number of engagements divided by the followers would be the engagement rate. So if the post gets 2,000 engagements, and engagement being a like or a comment, well, you divide that then by the number of followers that the influencer has to calculate your engagement rate. We're also looking oftentimes based on what the brief is or the goal of the campaign. If we're trying to target a more wine-knowledgeable audience, we're looking at the influencer. Have they ever posted about wine before? If they haven't, probably not the right fit for this campaign. But if we're trying to reach a demographic outside of the general wine consumer, maybe that's not as important. So we're also just looking at the tone of the content too. We're also looking at production quality. Are the photos a good quality? Do they seem professionally done? Are they placing the product in a way that seems natural? So those are some of the more qualitative measures. In general, wine, well, wine in general is smaller as an industry than food or health and wellness or fitness or anything else. So I've noticed when I look just on Instagram for myself and I see, you know, fitness influencers, the scale of followership is so much bigger than a wine specific influencer. Does that impact like their payment rate? 
Like, do wine-specific influencers get more credit per follower than because they're more niche and targeting a specific thing than a model that has 2 million influencers or 2 million followers? No, I'd say they're generally just not paid, you know, nearly at kind of comparable level to a health and wellness influencer. I think that also it's based on the industry. So if you think about it, the marketing dollars of, of a winery are typically much lower than the marketing dollars of a big health and wellness brand. So I would say they're just, they're disproportionate and they're, they're more accurately measured based on the number of followers that the influencer has. That's where that 2%, 3% kind of engagement rate really pans out because the more followers you get, once you get into that over 100,000, eventually it all kind of like goes into that ratio. Like no one, no one has a, has a million followers and is getting a 20% engagement, like, but you'll get micro influencers that can have that. Right, exactly. Yeah. So again, it's going to come down to what the strategy is and what you're trying to accomplish as a brand. So one of the things that you mentioned about wine knowledge just now was interesting is that you, and earlier you talked about people trust an influencer, just like they would get a recommendation from a friend. There's that kind of like personal touch. So they don't don't necessarily need to have a lot of wine knowledge. It could be like, oh, my best friend who may know nothing about wine said, hey, you should try this bottle. And because he's my friend and and this may be a digital friend now, is that part of the rationale that they don't need to, they could be a wine influencer, but not necessarily that knowledgeable. And that's what makes it acceptable. Yeah. I did also say that you want to show your wine in real settings. Like there's only so much content you can create within a studio or on a photo shoot that is going to put your brand in real life settings. So what an influencer allows you to do is show your consumer how to consume your product. So, hey, I'm drinking this bottle of Sauvignon Blanc at the beach. It's the summer. I'm having it, you know, with my beach picnic. So it's also giving the consumer occasions in which to try your product and making them familiar with your brand in that way. Another thing that we often do and that we recommend is rather than doing a singular post with one influencer, find a couple partners to create long-term relationships with and treat them almost like a brand ambassador. So engage with them on a six-month contract where they have a scheduled number of posts and story posts, feed posts, et cetera, deliverables each month to meet. And then their followers start to really understand your brand on a different level because they don't just see it once. They see it two times, three times, four times. And then maybe by that fourth time, they're like, wow, this influencer keeps posting about this wine. It must be great. I think I should, you know, next time I'm at the store, I'm going to pick it up. Also think about how to develop longer term relationships with influencers that can create multiple touch points for the consumer. We see a few different types of wine specific influencers. We call them like the wine collector where you see a lot of bottle shots, the lifestyle one where the person's usually the center and the wine is secondary. Some that are more trying to be educational about wine. Then there's people who are like in the trade or people who just curate other people's pictures. Do certain types of influencers work better than others? Do you, are there any, do you have any examples or in general, do any of those types work better for certain brands versus others? Yeah, I would say that if you're a brand that's trying to reach the collector audience and you have wines that are priced you know, $100 and, and plus per bottle, you're going to want to go with a more wine knowledgeable or collector type of influencer who's reaching that more wine niche audience that's investing that kind of money in the wines that they're that they're purchasing. So they're based on on the price point of your wine, you're look you're then measuring what type of influencer you might work with. 
Whereas if you're a consumer wine that's available in big grocery chains and is, let's say, $15 or less, you might look more at a wine lifestyle influencer that's going to get your product out there for the more average consumer. So I think it's going to come down to who's your target audience, and then you align the influencer based on the target audience. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that makes sense. In terms of when brands are working with an influencer and they feature the wine in a certain way, do you have guidelines? Are you, what kind of, not censorship, but what kind of direction are you giving to the influencers? Are you just, are you hoping to like do what they natively do? What do you provide to them? That's a great question. So if it's an organic partnership, meaning there's no payment, you're not paying the influencer, you're just reaching out to them and sending them product, then you don't have the same right to dictate what they post. If they're not being paid and you're sending them the product just to review, much like you might send it into a wine spectator or a publication, there's little to no control on what they post. But if you have a paid contract, then you would create for them brand guidelines. So this would be a style guide that can tell them what hashtags to use. You could tell them kind of tone of voice, things that you don't want posted, even keywords that you either do or do not want included in the language. You can be get really specific, which we see as a, a huge benefit with influencer marketing. You have a lot more control than with earned media. For organic influencer partnerships where you're just sending product, you can still send a suggested brand guideline, but the influencer might not may or may not look at it or may or may not follow it. But if they're being paid, it's more contractual where they're going to work with you on what the content is more specifically. So you can be pretty specific in what you want. I would say... Don't be shy with influencers to just be upfront about what you're looking for, what kind of content, what you do want to see, but also what you don't want to see. So definitely we for all of our clients, we have guidelines that we use for influencer campaigns. And if you're starting to develop an influencer campaign, we recommend that you create a style guide of sorts to, to use with your influencers. We also, for paid influencers, create influencer contracts. So the contract would outline the deliverables, the time frame in which they're required to post, as well as the payment. So that way you have everything in writing. It's very clear on both sides what's expected. But it's really largely guidelines, though. You're, you're essentially, you're not rubber stamping it before it goes live. You're like, I haven't defined what I'm looking for and write these deliverables very clearly but you're still letting the influencer kind of use their own sense of style and trusting that they're going to follow your guidelines. Yes, you're trusting that they're going to follow your guidelines. Depending on what the contract is, you can ask to see the content before it's posted, if you're paying for it, if it's a paid contract. Is that normal? Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, I think that's pretty standard that you would have some control over the content. Some influencers might push back on that. Some won't. It's going to depend on the person, but we, we will ask to see content if it's paid for. Because I can see from the influencer side that it's important for them to be authentic to their style and their audience versus also representing the brand. So getting that and essentially what you're paying for them is to marry the brand messaging and their style together. Because if they, if they deliver something that maybe is representative of the brand, but isn't their style, their, their users will know and, right. and may reject it. Yeah, we're not asking them to change their style. We just are asking them more for approval from a standpoint. Often it's to make sure that the content in terms of what's written, the caption or any writing on the post is accurate. It's capturing all the 
correct information. It's not, you know, inappropriate in any way. So I'd say it's really more or less of a critique of style. It would be more like we want to just make sure you got the right hashtags in the post and that you're not saying anything inappropriate. So it's never like, oh, we don't really like the color of the shirt you're wearing in that in that post. That's never the feedback we're giving. It's more like, oh, you know, we actually want you to use this hashtag or you know, that Chardonnay actually doesn't go under malolactic fermentation. You know, it's more just to make sure that the information is accurate. So it's it's less stylistic. We still definitely want them to keep their style and make sure that the content fits their feed. But when you're paying for something similar to like when you put out a paid advertisement and you take out an ad, you want to make sure all the information is correct. Your website's listed correctly. The pricing is correct. Every, you know, the tone of the ad is correct. So it's it's very similar to that. It's more that you want to just make sure the information is accurate. What are your thoughts on on Instagram where it says paid partnership for or hashtag ad versus going where it's not super obvious that it's an ad or you maybe you find out at the very end of the caption. Is that something that you're seeing hard and fast rules because the platforms seem to be open to interpretation. Like their Instagram's not necessarily forcing a rule per se. Yeah. I mean, it's if you want to stay totally above board and and legal, you want to make sure it's a sponsored or ad in some way, or that it says XX brand partner, you can frame it in a way that's a little bit less obvious. And then some influencers will also have their own standards on how they communicate about paid content. So very often that's going to be dictated, I'd say, by the influencer themselves, how they want to communicate the status of the post. But I would say to stay totally above the board, you're going to want to have some some type of hashtag sponsored ad. You know, is it ideal? I'd say, you know, it's better if it, it doesn't look like it's a paid ad. But I think for the most part, consumers are pretty savvy and you're not trying to trick them necessarily you know they so i'd say that it's it's it is what it is it's just a facet of it and so in terms of like that hit ratio of like hey i started working with this influencer and i know that you do a vetting process but how often do you feel like the brand was happy with what the influencer delivered with a post is it like how often was that was that a ha- was it a happy match I would say probably three quarters of the time we're hitting a happy match in terms of the content, right? Like that they they really like the picture that the influencer created or the story series or the video that they're really happy with uh, how their brand is being positioned. So more often than not, we're hitting the mark there. Whether we're hitting the mark in terms of the click-through or the actual, the KPI from a, a numeric standpoint, I'd say is still more of like a 50-50 hit. Sometimes you're really hitting the mark. You're getting great engagement on your page and a lot of new followers, or you're getting a lot of traffic that's pulling back to your website or whatever the call to action might be. So it's still a hit or miss. But similarly, you know, when people ask that question, I would also kind of ask, well, how do you measure the the success of that full page ad you took in a print publication that costs, you know, 50 or $60,000? It's a little bit tracking brand awareness isn't a perfect science. So we do our best to in, to implement metrics to, to track, but there's also somewhat of a leap of faith that you're taking when you're making that investment. On those lines, what are the different calls to action for influencer marketing campaigns? So some of like at a very basic level, let's go follow this page and and check out what they're about and 
you should try their product. So just following the page is, is a very basic call to action. Another one, if you're if you have an actual landing page or website, there could be a call to action to swipe up to check out more information about the brand. For example, if you're promoting an event, there might be a call to action to purchase a ticket to the event or tune into the event. So in that case, you're putting in a ticket link or something like that to the call to action or a link in the in the influencer's bio to where they can access the event. So those are those are a couple of examples. If it's a fundraising, you know, or an auction element, there might be a call to action to donate or that kind of thing. So those are those are a few different ones. So in terms of those tracking of those call to actions, it's mostly done by getting them through a swipe up and getting off of their page onto some website that is controlled by the brand. Right. So using a unique link, so a Bitly link or UTM code, then you can track how many click-throughs you got from the post. And in general, what would you say is a good engagement rate or viewership rate for a post? Obviously, it's dependent on the which influencers you use, but are you, are you looking for a specific ratio usually, or are brands looking for a specific ratio? An average, like a percentage of how many people click through. I think I would correlate it to the engagement rate. So if you're hitting the engagement rate of the influencer. So Again, that my 2% is, is sort of our metric. We want people to be at least at that 2% engagement rate. So I'd correlate it to that. And in terms of like content types, are you, are you driving the influencers more towards image or video? Is, or is that something that you're agnostic to? You're going to, I mean, video is great and we love video content. You're going to be asked to pay more for video than for a static post because it takes more time on the influencer side to produce video content. But I'd say that video is great for driving engagement on social media. So if they cost the same, I'd always choose video over, over static. But often you're going to have to invest more to get video content. So, you know, if your static post is 250, I would think at least double that for your video post. And then if you're thinking about video content on Instagram, it's short form, right? It's going to be under 60 seconds that you want that content to be. But sometimes you might think about if you want to do longer form video with an influencer, that that content is going to live on YouTube or live on a website, and then you're going to link back to that video content. So do you have a sense of what the normal return on investment is for an influencer campaign? We're measuring return on investment for an influencer campaign based on engagement rate of the post. So we're going to say that okay, this post had 5% engagement rate, which is higher than industry standard. So we consider that a success. Or if the post got you know, 0.2% engagement rate, we're going to consider that not a success because it's a lot less than industry standard. So I'd say engagement rate is going to be one of our most trusted metrics when we're measuring the success and the ROI on an influencer campaign. And then similarly, how many people did we track back to the website if we're using a code or if there was a call to action to click back to a website? We're going to be tracking that as well. And could you give us a couple examples of the best campaigns you guys have run? It would just be interesting to hear specific examples. Yeah, we did a great campaign last summer with the Prosecco DOC. So we have a Prosecco week every summer. So we encourage influencers to create a lot of great video content with Prosecco Week. So there we had people create like film noir videos about Prosecco. We had some really great food pairing content. But overall, what was successful about those collaborations, I'd say that it was all 
within a specific time frame. So all within that one week, it was creating awareness around a category as opposed to a specific brand. So we're able to really drive awareness around a whole movement around Prosecco. And also then we were able to drive awareness to some online retail promotions that we were running with various retail partners because you have less restrictions when it comes to promotion of retail if you're if you're promoting as a region as opposed to a single brand, less issues with Tidehouse and that kind of thing. So I would say that was one example of a good campaign. How many influencers were part of that and, and retailers? We had over 350 retailers nationwide involved. And then on the influencer side, we had about 15 to 20 different partners. And then the influencers had different types of content. Some did Instagram lives where they talked about National Prosecco Week. Some had static posts, some had short video. So we had also just a mix of different content out there. So I am curious, like uh, you mentioned International Prosecco Week, and, and there's there's this calendar of wine holidays mm-hmm. <laughs> that are basically all around. And every day I learn about some new wine holiday. I'm just curious how effective like coordinating around this imaginary calendar of wine holidays is. <laughs> I know, right? There's like, never, <laughs> yeah, I know. They, they, they pop up often. I mean, they, they create a reason to, to say something. Sometimes I think... We tend to see more content and more success around the larger themes like National Pinot Noir Day or National Cabernet Day, National Red Wine Day, as opposed to when it gets like super, super hyper specific, then you're like, okay, it's just, it's not going to create enough broad scale awareness. But much like in earned media, it does give people a, a reason to post or a reason to talk about a specific subject. Yeah, I feel it's like almost like the like a guidebook of like, hey, if you want ideas of what to blog about or, yeah, or draft exactly. content about, it's a, it's a here's a, here's how you start. So, really want to thank you for joining us. In every episode, we always ask our guests, what do you think is a lasting trend in this space versus a fizzling fad? Yeah, that's a great question. I see a lasting trend. I think video. I, I think video content is only increased in popularity over the last six months as people are home more and spending more time online and on their phones even more than before. But I do think that video, good video content will continue to trend and be important for brands to invest in. In terms of a a fizzling fad in the influencer space, I think that one thing we're seeing already fizzle out is the Instagram lives. So I know that's also video and it sounds maybe contradictory, but I see the lasting trend as produced video content that's more either a slightly longer form or just produced to live as a static video as opposed to this short form live video where there's a couple influencers or even just a couple people chatting about a subject. I I don't, we're already kind of see those starting to die down. They were really popular when COVID first hit in March and April where people were home a lot, but we've already seen those things start to fade away. And I think we'll continue to see the Instagram live trends sort of fade away, but I think we will see the lasting impact of static video. Yeah, it's interesting. So I do a lot of Instagram lives and definitely YouTube or Instagram's not built for long form content. Once it go, goes live and once it gets posted, once it gets posted, you can't really search for it and go back to it. And that's the advantage of YouTube where it's really built for that. And, and Instagram just hasn't invested in that. So it is ephemeral and, and it's popular. And, if, and for someone who's really wants to bookmark something, that's kind of how you know to go back to it, but it's it's a little bit more difficult to find. I think also with the live, like just too often, I'm, you know, the consumer doesn't know what they're watching. So if they're just 
swiping through their stories and they land on a live. There's not enough text. I know there's been some ways people can, you can pin something at the bottom or you can, some people, you can create backgrounds, but I don't think there's like enough text. So many people are looking at Instagram without sound. So, you know, if you can't capture someone's attention with two talking heads with no text, it's a little bit hard. So that's where I see that some of the weaknesses of the live video, especially. Yeah, well, I mean, I, this, I thought this was very insightful. This is a, uh, I mean, I, I learned a lot. So thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us and spending your time and all the prep work to answer all of our crazy questions. Yeah, so I hope I um, taught people something or they learned something they didn't know before. It's definitely a, a field that I think, again, it's still evolving. And it's a space, though, like any marketing space where being really clear about your objectives and what you want to accomplish and who you're trying to target is going to set you up for success. So starting with those things and being really clear about your objectives before going into any collaboration, whether it's a single post or a campaign with 30 posts, is going to help set you up for success. So that would kind of be my my lasting piece of advice, whether you're doing your own influencer marketing campaign or engaging with an agency to do one on your behalf. Just be super clear and direct about what you're looking for and what you're trying to gain out of it. And I think overall, you'll either be pleasantly surprised or maybe you won't be, but at least you'll be able to have a clear definition of whether or not it was successful. Great. Well, thank you very much. I think that's a great advice for everybody to adhere to. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.